Hi, everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from board directors and senior executives. My guest today is John McComnick. Welcome, John. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. John is someone known to many in the investment and governance space. In the mid-1990s, he ran New York City's $80 billion pension fund. He's a co-founder of the International Corporate Governance Network, served as the interim chair of the Council of Institutional Investors, and has been named to the NACD Directorship 100 list three times in his career, which is a very notable achievement. He's the co-author of two books, as well as being the author of chapters and several others. His most recent book is called what They Do With Your Money, written with Stephen Davis of the Harvard Law School and David Pitt Watson, formerly of Hermes Asset Management in London and now at Cambridge University. Forbes calls John one of the pioneers of modern corporate governance. He recently returned from the UK where he served as the Pembroke Visiting Professor of International Finance at Cambridge in the Judge Business School, and prior to that served for over 10 years as head of the IRRC Institute. It's great to have you with us, John. Thanks much. So as I touched on a bit, um, you've managed a massive pension. Um, you're a highly regarded director serving on both listed companies, private company boards, uh, as well as nonprofits. Would you mind taking us on a little tour um, of your experiences to go in more detail than I did? Um, sure. Let me start by where you started, which is I ran the New York City pension funds in um, the mid-90s and became very interested in risk. In fact, started the risk oversight office there. Um, for those who were into quantitative risk or financial uh, modeling, that was back in barra total risk days. But what I quickly understood was that the real risks were in the assumptions that one put into risk models, not in the math, and that operational risk was something you didn't get paid for. Um, and that risk was bilateral. We just call it opportunity on the upside and risk on the downside. It's not symmetrical. It's not a normal distribution, but it is bilateral. Um, and I took that understanding with me. I then um, actually was in charge of risk for a, one of the top 10 hedge funds in the world. Um, I took my understanding of risk. I actually was on the creditors committee that rehabilitated WorldCom in Adelphia. So sort of don a hazmat suit and really get in um, to some operational risk issues. And I think that interdisciplinary aspect of understanding um, what risk is and how to deal with it both quantitatively um, and in terms of op risk, operational risk, um, really has stood me in good stead throughout the rest of my career. Well, this is one of the things I think you and I have been through um, are a lot of different crises. Um, and it was interesting to have you uh, talk about the days back when you started risk oversight for the pension. Um, and this, this notion that the assumptions that go in um, are probably more important than necessarily the math or that the math you had was um, uh, something in which you trusted. So boards get reports um, and some of them might include these risk reports, but the responsibility of boards um, since you, know, you started looking at this stuff in the mid-90s and today 
uh, has changed and the expectations have changed um, quite radically. Um, what's your perspective on how the responsibility of boards has changed the most, um, particularly in regards to risk? Oh, well, let's start from zero to 100 miles an hour in probably <laughs> a decade. Um, I think what's everyone knows that boards are responsible for all types of risk. Risk is, you know, the audit committee, um, uh, except in financial institutions where there tends to be a separate risk committee, but the audit committee um, has become, to quote the former head of the uh, um, CAQ, the kitchen drawer of, of, of boards. Things just keep getting thrown in there when you don't know what else to do. So risk is in there. Um, and risk for a corporate board um, is multifaceted. The everything from what's the culture to if you're an audit committee, you'd better understand how executive compensation incentives um, can incent different behaviors, some intended, some unintended, quite honestly, um, to supply chain risk, to reputation risk, how do you monitor it? How do you keep up to date on it? Um, so what what most large companies, and um, it is very different for large companies and small companies, and people tend to do surveys around the S&P uh, 500 or you know larger companies, and smaller companies, it's different, and you don't have as much resources and formal reporting. But the thing that I am always concerned with um, to take the, the common red, yellow, green dashboards is how do you know green is green? How do you, you know, if, if, some, if, if the executive function comes to you and say, we have a red risk, you can be pretty sure that they are paying attention to it. So this is one of those assumptions. Everyone looks for what's yellow and red, and yes, you have to pay attention to it. But I also look structurally for how do you know green is green? And that's where I think boards need to be comfortable with what I call the independent reassurance functions. You know, what does internal audit say? How does it line up? Do your financials sort of reflect the risks that you're being told about? What does the external auditor say? Um, you, you need, what does HR say? Often HR knows where the problem is. And then my favorite, favorite secret sauce for monitoring risk in a corporation, the head of IT. Because IT knows everyone who's got an Excel spreadsheet on their monitor, everyone who's, who's looking at stuff, they know what programs all of a sudden spike in use. And those tend to relate to the things that the company is most concerned with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I think for good boards, you want to know structurally your independent reassurance is correctly done. Does your compliance function, your IA, all that come back up to you in some way that you have trust it's not being overly filtered? And then every once in a while, I think boards need to have um, FaceTime with heads of HR, obviously legal, but also IT. IT is just one of those great underutilized functions in a company. And we happen to be recording this during COVID-19 and everyone's sheltering in place. And 
talking to IT about what's really going on with your business continuity planning and what changes when it goes from three days to three months and what unintended things are going on and how does BCP um, collide, quite honestly, with cybersecurity because you just have more devices and more entry points to a system. All those are really good questions and to me, IT has almost become the equivalent of internal audit and giving me information about risk. There are a couple of things I want to follow up on that you said in that. That's really helpful. Um, boards, responsibilities, and the complexity of the expectations that people have on them, particularly investors and, and regulators, seem to have ramped up, I think you said, from zero to 100 miles an hour over the last 10 years. How many boards can someone serve on effectively given that? You know, I hate rules of thumb, but I'll give you one on this. If you have a full-time job, maybe two, aside from the one that you're on. If you're a CEO, maybe one, aside from the one you're on. If you don't have a full-time job, maybe three. I, I find it amazing that, um, and, and by and large, the U.S. director community has embraced that. There are very few overboarded directors nowadays, but there are still some who serve on five or six boards, and I just don't believe that you can be an effective director. The amount of time that it takes to be a director has ramped up. And again, this is a great example. We are recording this, as I said, during um, the COVID-19 pandemic. Every board has increased the frequency of oversight meetings. I was listening to um, a, uh, someone from Elegant, and someone from Sidley Austin talking about the fact that they know a number of boards that are having weekly check-in meetings. So even if you think you can serve on five boards in a normal time period, the fact of the matter is that during crises when your expertise is needed most, the time commitment and the focus goes up. And so there's no reserve capacity. So I would, to go back to answer the question yet again, I would say three if you have no other commitments, one if you're a currently sitting CEO. That's helpful. And, and I think during times of stress, too, our ability to process some of the complex issues um, is, is put at risk um, because we tend to be reactive. You had talked about internal reassurance functions. Um, and I think one of the things we've seen from the DCRO is that there's a focus on gathering this information so that people ensure that the right infrastructure is in place. Um, and you then also had said, I think if I'm, if I'm phrasing it properly, that the audit committee is the kitchen sink um, or has become the kitchen sink of board committees. Um, what is the resistance outside of financial service companies to creating risk committees um, at companies that don't have them right now? First, I just think that there is a resistance to having committee proliferation. And you know what, I, I think that's probably a good resistance. It doesn't mean it can't be overcomable, but let's call it a rebuttable presumption that you, you limit it. Second, I think there are specialized committees for different industries. For instance, a number of pharmaceutical companies have the equivalent of public interest or science committees. And they are focusing on the essential risks of the core business. So 
some of this is nomenclature, but I do think a lot of it gets put onto audit. The problem with putting it onto audit is audit tends to focus on internal controls over financial reporting, on disclosure issues. Um, you need a deep understanding of how the controls over financial reporting link back to the essential ways that the company is being managed. Now, I am not suggesting that um, directors get involved operationally or micromanage. In fact, you mentioned two interesting things, which is the need for information and the focus on the infrastructure around that information. To me, what that adds up to is governance. What the audit committee needs and what the board needs, whether it is through the audit committee, a risk committee, a public interest committee, a scientific committee, however that works, is an assurance that the correct, not just information, because you can get drowned in information, but the correct analyses and the focus of the board is being directed correctly towards the issues which are A, urgent, B, important, um, and C, value creating or value destroying. Um, that is to be the focus of the, the purpose of governance is to say how I'm never going to have the same amount of information as um, the operating company, nor should I, quite honestly. But how do I have the information I need to fulfill my oversight function and help guide the strategy of the company and decide if I have the right team running the company? That's why the independent reassurance, the IA and the compliance and the HR and the IT that I mentioned are so important because you try to see if it all lines up. You know, when I did due diligence on asset managers, you always looked for what didn't make sense in creating the product that you wanted. And when you get multiple viewpoints of the same essential corporate functions from those information sources in an oversight function, again, not in a management, not an operational, but in your summary documents, maybe in an executive session, particularly with IA, it tells you whether or not you can have confidence in the dashboard you're getting from the C-suite. Yeah, and there's, uh, the DCRO had put forward um, some guiding principles documents, one of them for risk committees, and I thought one of the more insightful comments that came in there was that when you consider placing risk governance in the audit committee, the audit committee tends to have a backward focus on validation, um, and I think that was part of what you had suggested, whereas risk committees tend to be about anticipation and forward-looking um, discussions, and I think that's a really helpful distinction. Um, you also just talked about um, when people are looking at uh, how boards are functioning like this. You've done a lot of work um, in the investment space and, and governance of risk from the investor perspective. Um, have you seen effective ways for activist investors to approach boards to learn more about how they're governing risk and whether they're thinking through some of the things that you've just described? Let me go to investors, but I want to second what you said about the timeframes. The, the, the issue with accounting currently is that only 14% of S&P 500 value is reflected in 
um, balance sheets or income statements or cash flow statements that increasingly we are going to a world where intangibles, brands, business models, customer loyalty drive value. And our part of that is because our accounting system is based on an as-of-date realized value as opposed to a continuous value creation focus. And that is what an audit committee needs or a risk committee needs to do the risk function correctly. So I wholeheartedly agree with you that you need to be looking at how are you creating value as opposed to what value was created in the, as of the la end of the last fiscal year or last quarter. The one advantage of the realization is that it provides a proof statement to tie out against what you thought. But that being said, you do need that concurrent or future-looking risk lens. In terms of investors, I'm just going to quibble with the phrase activist. Because people think of activists as, you know, Carl Icahn or Bill Ackman coming in. And quite honestly, um, they often argue for efficiency, for a shorter balance sheet, for a smaller balance sheet, for leveraging a company. Um, not always. There are a bunch of good activists. I'm not going to say the name because it's not Ed, but I chair <laughs> the advisory board of one activist that tends to be operationally organized and looking at value creation, but every once in a while there is still a balance sheet activist. And the problem with balance sheet activists is, is if you become as efficient as you possibly can for normal time periods, you have less resiliency for crises. Now, I do think that active shareholders, the type of stewardship that you see uh, primarily in Europe, but also increasingly in the United States, where people are concerned about things like culture, environmental, social, and governance are really useful lenses for boards to think about because those tend to be forward-looking, exactly as you said. So if you're talking about, you know, what is your relationship with your supply chain? What is your relationship with the environment? How are you governing? What are you actually incenting for? So on executive compensation, are you incenting things that actually are levels of value creation or are they merely reflections of stock market gain through total shareholder return type metrics? Or are they metrics like how much of, of the company's revenues are derived from new product launches or new services within the last five years? or other direct line of sight value creation metrics. That's where I think investors have an interesting role to play. Now, having said that, no investor knows the company as well as the directors do. Um, and it is the job of the directors or a designee of the directors to explain to investors why things are done the way they're done. But explaining isn't dictating. I think there are very smart investors out there. Um, you know, people listen to Larry Fink's letters. People listen to Ron O'Hanley's letters, BlackRock, State Street. Um, there are increasingly um, very 
sector-oriented, specific type disclosures people are asking for, often based on the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, which are designed to be material by industry sector. And those type of disclosures, I think, aid not just the investors, but the directors and the company in trying to decide what's material on ESG for that company, for that sector, um, and over what time period. And so I do think that the stewardship of investors, as opposed to what we think of as activists, um, matters. It's what, um, I'm writing a new book, what we're calling third stage corporate governance, where you, investors are trying to deal with systematic risks across companies. The job of the director is to take those systematic risk across company focus and refine it even further to make it systematic risk across the sector down to the individual company and contextualize it for the company. I like this turn of phrase um, that you had used. So I had used activist investors, and I think you're right, it does conjure up the image of, uh, of someone coming in to try and shake things up for their own benefit. Um, you had used stewardship, and I think it's a really interesting idea to think of stewardship investors. And I was aware of how um, valuation of the company had shifted from tangible to intangible. And I don't know that I was aware that we're up to 86%, but that brings forward this idea that value is something driven by external perceptions. So if I have you know, 85% of my company valuation based on what people think of me, that makes this concept of trust and the trust that they have in the organization, whomever they might be, investors or, or even people in the supply chain, more important. So do you see boards talking about trust? I see boards talking about culture um, internally, and I see boards talking about stakeholder relationships, a la the BRT statement, externally. Trust is a really interesting concept for economists. In theory, for instance, when we say you're coming to work, even if you have a contract, we don't explain all the things that work entails. We don't say you're supposed to focus on what the company is doing. You're supposed to, if it's a particular hourly job, be there, you know, from nine to five or, or whenever, if it's a white collar job, that there's a ineffective duty of, of uh, loyalty to the company while you're working. You should, you know, I've never yet seen a, I've seen confidentiality agreements, but I've never yet seen a, a basic agreement that says, by the way, you won't engage in industrial espionage, for instance. <laughs> so economists think of trust as a lubricant in relationships between parties. So in your question, it's what do you think about your relationship with your suppliers? Well, the, for instance, obviously if the suppliers don't trust you, they require more payment up front, you have worse terms. What do you think about trust with your workforce? If there is actually some very real evidence that companies which are not trusted, A, have higher turnover, which is a cost, 
and B, actually have to pay more for the same level talent. So I don't think I have seen boards talk about the word trust per se. I have seen them talk internally about culture and, I, and they tend to monitor that through employee surveys and other things. And I've seen them talk about specific relationships with specific other stakeholders, supply chain, customers, workforce, regulators, if they're a regulated industry. Um, but trust is a good word to think about as it cuts across all those because increasing levels of trust, according to all the academic literature, acts as a lubricant. It reduces costs. It makes things go quicker and easier. Um, and decreasing levels of trust has the opposite effect. And I think it's so important, John, because trust is one of those soft words um, that can turn people off, particularly if they're dealing with strategy. But the way in which you link it to costs um, in terms of uh, reduction of cost, but also increasing cost if you, if you don't have it, um, that's to me the essential connection between trust and how organizations benefit um, from focusing on it. So I'm glad you made that. So if you could give a board member, there are going to be some people listening to this who are exploring the idea of risk committees, their boards, they're new to boards, they may not be as familiar with risk uh, and risk governance as you and I might be. If you could give them advice on the first step they could take to establish a solid culture around risk governance at the board level and maybe even within the organization, what would that be? Understand information flow and what information you need to judge upcoming risks and normal operations, right? The opposite of uh, operational risk is normalcy. Also understand whether you are in a transparent or opaque environment. And finally, understand the difference between um, different ways of thinking about risk in terms of risk identity. People talk about risk management. What they really are doing is risk identification and listing a bunch of risks. I think that is useful and using something like a COSO framework to list mitigations and what residual risk is, is useful. But in some situations, you approach chaos where it's not risk, meaning it's not calculable, but it is uncertainty and things like pandemics bring uncertainty to whole new levels that approach. When I, when I think of overwhelming uncertainty, it's almost chaos. And then you have to understand the difference between risk identification, risk mitigation, and what I consider the two um, overarching strategies for a company to deal with any risk, which is agility, which is the normal thing you do. We have cybersecurity issue. We are agile. We hire um, all sorts of IT companies to protect us. We train our staff in phishing exercises. We do, you know, white hat hacking, we do all those things. That's sort of agility and resilience. And resilience is something that we tend not to think about. I mentioned it earlier um, with regard to activists who 
um, with regard to, to sort of the yin and yang of efficiency and resiliency. If you have a fortress balance sheet, you're not being very efficient in most times, but you're being very resilient in crisis times. And so I think one of the things that a new member of a risk committee should think about is, are we relying on agility or resiliency in which areas, to what extent, and in what time periods, and when will we know, how will we know the need to switch between the two? That's and great. It's not really switching because it's not on off, but it's a continuum. Where do we know that we have to shift slightly more towards resiliency and where do we know that we can return to agility and become more efficient? And that's great advice too in keeping with the idea of being forward-looking. Um, this has been very helpful and I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, David, and best of luck with the to everyone who's in the DCRO. It's been a great organization for many years, and the surveys are very helpful in understanding what's going on in the world. Thank you, John. <laughs>